Hello! Welcome back to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I'll be looking at part two, chapter two of The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um, so if you're just joining us, you may want to go back and listen to the first, my thoughts on the first chapter, my overall introduction to Charles Dexter Ward. The first chapter is quite short. It's just two parts. The second chapter, though, is very, very long. It's not the longest in the book, in the, the short novel. But it's, it's pretty long. In fact, if this were just written as its own story, I think it could stand up as its own story. It, it does kind of stand alone. Um, and maybe, you know, in another world, Lovecraft could have pursued this, published it as its own story. It's not really... It, I mean, the rest of the story is dependent on this part of this book. But this could stand alone uh, about a, a wizard in colonial America... You know, and his weird behavior and his connections to the witch trials and all that. So it's and then his ultimate fate, the, the attempt to purge him. Um, now, the major themes we've been talking about in the last episode is the theme of forgetting how, you know, the great hero of the story, um, Willett, uh, is successful at abolishing the memory of Joseph Kerwin. Right. And the previous People who try to get rid of Kerwin, to hide him, to abolish his memory, failed to do that. And enough evidence remained in legends, in little bits of documentary evidence that Charles Dexter Ward is able to reconstruct his life. Right. So this opens, brings us up into part two, which is basically a summation, although it's, it's 30 pages long itself. It's as long as most of Lovecraft's other stories, or if not longer. Um, where we see what Ward has been able to recreate. And it, the fact that he's able to say so much detail about Joseph Kerwin's life shows just how utterly these 18th century people failed at eradicating the memory of, of, of Kerwin, if that was their goal at all. And it seems it's very clear it was their goal. We'll, we'll see evidence of that at the end of this, this chapter. So I can't give you, and I, I'm not going to, I, I don't really desire to give you every detail that's here. There's certainly a lot to say about Joseph Kerwin. As, as I said, it could be its own story, um, standalone story that's pretty good. But uh, we do get essentially the life history of Joseph Kerwin from his arrival in Providence in the, in the middle of the, of the 18th century until his, his apparent death and the, at the eve of the American Revolution. Actually, let's get the dates exact. So he 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 arrives sometime after 1713, or sometimes before 1713. Quote the, to quote the story. Now, the first odd thing about Joseph Kerwin was that he did not seem to grow much older than he did had been on his arrival. He engaged in shipping enterprises, purchased wharfages near Mile and Cove, and helped rebuild the Great Bridge in 1713. And in 1723, was one of the founders of the Congregational Church on the Hill. So he has some social prominence, but sometime before that he arrived. The date might be here somewhere. He's not, he doesn't tell the story in precisely in a linear fashion. There's a lot of flashbacks. In fact, the whole novel kind of has a, a narrative that flips around a little bit. Um, but the final events of this chapter take place in April 1771. So literally right in the midst of the colonial crisis. So I want to think about this kind of parallel to the American Revolution. And there's reasons to think that, that Lovecraft wanted us to think about the American Revolution as we uh, read this, this part of the story. Um, partially because of where it's set 
in Providence, partially the kind of person Joseph Kerwin is, a transatlantic person, someone with European connections, uh, someone who's also engaged in trade and the slave trade. It's kind of subtle, but I think it's pretty clear that Joseph Kerwin on some level is a metaphor for the, the crimes of the Anglo-American colonial world. Uh, anyways, I'm going to stick by that. If you don't want to agree with me, you don't have to. But that's what I think Joseph Kerwin kind of represents. If not, at the very least, that's my new, new kind of new criticism reading of it. I, I'm I, maybe I'm imposing it on the story. Maybe it's not Lovecraft's intention, but I do think he placed the story in this time and place, and he makes certain comments that make me think that there's a relationship between that and. You know, this this is one way that actually was tried in the Declaration of Independence in the first draft. You know, one way of covering up America's crimes is to pin them on the British, right? Or pin them on the Europeans, pin them on the Tories, right? It's like, it's the Tories who who, who took all this land from the Indians after the French and Indian War, or it was the British who did it, or it was the British who put, imposed slavery on us, right? These were things in the Declaration of Independence itself, and that list of grievances part of it. Um, I think the one on slavery was taken out in the final draft, but it, it was there in the original draft that, that Jefferson wrote. So it's a way of kind of blaming America's original sins on, on the British rather than on the Americans themselves. And that itself was an act of historical forgetting, as is this whole story is about forgetting. So we're given Kerwin's uh, description. He's about 30 years old, colorless. Um, he migrated from, from like Salem to Providence. So the time that he's migrating from Salem does lend credence to this connection to the slave trade or not the slave trade, the witch trials, which I think Lovecraft certainly means. That's another kind of example of where Kerwin's being associated with some crime of America that from this colonial period, which is why, you know, Lovecraft really loved the 18th century so much, but I think he realized how dark it was on some level. He, he's, you know, he's, there, there's like the surface reading of Lovecraft, but I think without trying too hard, you can kind of peel that away and kind of invert those narratives. Like, I think you can do this with Innsmouth, uh, clearly. You can do it with Call of Cthulhu, you know, when he talks about like this drive for freedom, this very attractive drive for freedom among like the mulatto sailors in the Call of Cthulhu. And I think here, you know, you don't have to go much under the surface to see to realize Lovecraft was really, really aware of just how dark the 18th century was as much as he kind of admired it and, and described it as this ideal century. He knew that under beyond London literary culture, there's a lot of bleak stuff. And, and he uses Kerwin to kind of exercise that aspect of the 18th century. At least that's what I think. So we know he comes from Salem. He comes, uh, he's about 30 years old. He looks a bit um, odd to people. But we learn pretty quickly he's timeless, right? He, he doesn't seem to age, right? So he's an alchemist, right? He's an alchemist, which that accounts for his agelessness. He's got magic. And, you know, but no one really knows that. People suspect things about him, but they don't really have the understanding of the occult to really explain what that is. There's a lot of gossip about him, though. There's also gossip about his Atlantic connections and his external connections, his contacts with trade, right? Quote, Gosselick spoke of the strange substances he brought from London and the Indies on his ships or purchased in Newport, Boston, and New York. And when old Dr. Jabez Brown came from 
Rehoboth and opened up a Catholic carry shop across the Great Bridge at the sign of the Unicorn and Mortar, there was ceaseless talk of the drugs, acids, and metals, and the tactum recluse incessantly bought or ordered from him. So he's bringing in stuff through his own shipping connections, and he's buying out the apothecaries. So he needs his ingredients for his like magic spells, his alchemy, right? His various potions like alchemy. But how does Kerwin kind of cover up for this? And this is a theme throughout the whole chapter, is he does it through being respectable, trying to be respectable, trying to be socially prominent, to be a good citizen. So, so he's trying to be a good colonial citizen, right? Building the, going to church, Build, helping build the church, building the bridge, you know, getting involved a little bit in politics, doing that. You know, he eventually has to marry the right woman. So he's trying to be as socially prominent as possible to rise his, raise his status up, right? Um, but that doesn't stop the gossip and the awareness of the people of just how weird Joseph Kerwin really is. Um, for instance, he has all these, uh, like, nighttime interests, right? He, he's interest, he's got necrotic interests, actually. Great. He's interested in graves. And he'll be seen in graveyards, right? And these are things people don't want to talk about because it's creepy. And it's it's the kind of thing that's even now, but especially in colonial societies, you know, neighborhoods just want to kind of sweep under the rug. They don't want to really be exposed because it's so horrific to actually think about, right? It's kind of like how with murderesses, they used to, you know, put them under house arrest because the reality of the story is that they're probably be beaten by their husband and to have a court case to really push the matter is going to expose something pretty gross uh, about the community that you don't want exposed. So you just kind of, you know, let the murderers be, put them sort of under house arrest or whatever. Uh, and there's examples of that in, in American history. I, I, there's a book about that somewhere. Um, and... You know, he also like associates with a lot of racially like marginalized people, slaves, Indians and things like that. Quote, here his only visible surface servants, farmers and caretakers were a sullen pair of aged Nagasaki Indians. The husband dumb and curiously scarred and the wife a very repulsive cast of continents, probably due to a mixture of Negro blood. End quote. So we got a little bit of a racial narrative there, but it's not something we've we're, we're not used to seeing. We've seen this so many times in Lovecraft's writing. That is no surprise, but the difference here is it's set in the 18th century. So the same type of interracial, uh, suspicious people are floating around his stories, even two centuries back. Um, so the first major, I guess, moment in which Kerwin could have been exposed is the visit of this guy in 1746, a visit of a John Merritt. Um, So now a lot of the people in these stories, I think most of them and most of the books that are mentioned here are real. So um, so, someone really has to, if they haven't already done this, is do a full dissection and analysis of Joseph Kerwin's library. Um, In fact, I think that'd be a a good name for an essay, Joseph Kerwin's library. Uh, Maybe I'll take it. Maybe I'll do it. Because he visits Kerwin and he's able to kind of get into the house. and, And we get a little bit about how Charles Dexter Ward found out through like other people's accounts like you can't hide erase someone totally 100 percent, right it's, it's it's difficult now ward makes it easier for willett because he collects all these documents and then all willett has to do is like burn the documents because they're already collected but 
once you know hiding someone's life entirely is it's pretty hard you can hide some documents but there's always going to be some other mention somewhere even in you know early modern times so uh, but this merit he's from england and he visits him and he's kind of a scholar and scientist so he's going to recognize the books on kerwin's library in this library and we get this whole page description of his library right so um I'm not even going to try to name all these people, um, but they're all real people. And they're often people who wrote books that are affiliated with the occult or affiliated with uh, uh, early science, affiliated with uh, beliefs in magic. Some are religious texts, some are philosophical. Um, but we get the whole list of this, of the books on his shelf. And he's even got a copy of the Necronomicon, but he hides it. Quote, Mr. Mayor turned pale when upon taking down a fine volume conspicuously labeled as the Kanun al-Islam, he found it was in truth the forbidden Necronomicon of the mad Arab Abdul Hazared, of which he had heard many such monstrous things whispered some years previously after the exposure of nameless rites at the strange little fishing village of Kingsport. Now, that tells us also that the festivals, the rituals going on in the festival go all the way back to the 18th century. And, and we know they're primordial in the festival itself that we're told these stories go way, way back. So we get a little nice little shout out to Kingsport and to the story, the great story, the wonderful story, um, the festival. But the main point here is that these are mostly real books, except for the Necronomicon. And it'd be really interesting, I think, to break this down text by text and kind of see what's what stuff are you reading and what's really in those books, right? Who wants to actually read all these books? So that's my question. Um, now, another book we have is um, Borellus, who is mentioned in the epigraph to the whole story um, as the guy who talks about if we could reduce people, animals to their essential salts. You may be able to have a library, a, a, like a zoological library of just little bottles of salts and maybe if you could do that to people you could have a a, a knowledge library of everyone because if you could restore people and reduce them to salts that's of course what eventually eventually happens and that's what Ker, that's that's kerwin's fetish that's that's what turns them on is awakening ancient wizards and maybe the people who wrote these freaking books waking them up and then like slap them until they tell them some secret that that he doesn't know. I mean, that's that's what he does for fun. That's that's his that's his big scheme, right? Now, the horror of the story really comes in like what happens to Ward, and you know, and all that. But you know, his scheme, his plan is basically to live forever and to acquire as much knowledge as possible, which isn't the most villainous thing in the world. But to do this, he basically enslaves whoever he has to to achieve this goal. Right? So that's pretty bad. But his ultimate ambition isn't the worst thing we've seen in a Lovecraft story. So we have some wonderful things here about uh, rumors. Some of the rumors are caused by, you know, this guy seeing his library. And he knows this library is not normal. Like, this is weird stuff. People shouldn't, normal people shouldn't be reading this stuff, essentially. But there's other rumors about what Kerwin's up to in his maritime interests. And here's where the sailors come in as a very powerful force. This is a great example of where sailors become victims. So often in his stories, sailors are like um, threats, like the nautical-looking Negro and the Call of Cthulhu. But as we saw in the Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath, sailors could also be um, 
victims and slaves and and have the ability to resist in various ways too here we're able to get some rumors from the slaves it's not clear how the stuff trickles down to ward but but here we have it quote it was near the docks along the southern part of town that the town street that the worst things were muttered about joseph Kerwin. sailors are suspicious folk and the seasoned sulks who man the infinite rum slave and molasses sloops the rakish privateers and the great brigs of the browns crawfords and tillinghasts all made strange furtive signs of protection when they saw the slim deceptively look, young looking figure with its yellow hair and slight sloop entering the Kerwin warehouse in Doboon Street or talking with captains and supercargoes on the long quay where the Kerwin ships rode restlessly. Um, so they know he's up to something and why not? They're the victims. They probably saw stuff and, and we're going to find out later that he's actually experimenting on slaves and sailors. They're, they're outright victims of Kerwin's designs and he's a maritime figure so again i think the parallel between Kerwin and the actual crimes the actual evils of 18th century atlantic anglo-american empires it's not a big leap to to make that extent you know because he's involved in that stuff he is a slaver he is a slave trader right he is someone who basically enslaved and misuses indians as as we've seen his servants are indians he sort of experimented on right He's of the ruling class. You know, he profits off of this stuff at the same time he's kind of pursuing his own experiments. His crimes are not unique. They're not distinctive, right? Maybe there's not many wizards around, but beyond that, the, the worst of his crimes, the stealing of people, the sacrificing their lives for, for material gain, are common in this time period. Um, now, by 1760, Kerwin becomes increasingly outcast, largely maybe because of these rumors. Uh, but for whatever reason, he becomes more and more isolated and outcast. And this just kind of promotes more and more rumors, both by sailors and others. But he's super rich. He, 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 he becomes quite rich as a result of this. He basically becomes a monopolist in certain commodities coming in and out of the town, such as saltpeter. Um, and we get a nice little paragraph of just how much Kerwin is controlling. And of course, this is allowing him to build this whole, this house and this lab and this whole underground network that we're eventually going to be exposed to. And to keep on his slave trade, which is allowing him to, you know, giving him the bodies he, the bodies he needs for his experiment. Now, how do you cover up for this? Well, the way you cover up for it is you just become a socially respectable as honorable, as well-known as possible. And that's that's what he does. He becomes a good churchgoer. He, you know, he's a little bit socially isolated. He's a loner. He talks, he spends his time with these sailors and supercargoes and captains. And he's at the docks all the time and in the graveyards doing weird stuff. But, you know, when he has to, he, he, you know, he does his civic duty as any rich, wealthy person in a colonial city would do, right? you know connect with patronism and patronage and building the bridges and helping support the churches and all that good stuff getting involved in the politics and the militia and all that stuff so kerwin is is good at maintaining that he's got some experience right he's been around a while obviously but he's still a real target of speculation because he's not aging you know he's basically living forever uh he still looks like he's 30 years old even though he's been in 
in Providence for like 50 years. So, but wealth allows them to hide this reality. That's another kind of sub-theme here, right? If you're wealthy enough, if you're powerful enough, you can get away with any weird behavior, right? That's the... the What's it, the Citizen Kane thing? Right, Citizen Kane. Who's that based off of? Hearst? William Randolph Hearst? So, uh, yeah. What do we got here? Quote, such is the power of wealth. This is Lovecraft writing. He's saying it directly. I'm not making this up. Such is the power of wealth and of surface gestures, however, that there came indeed a slight abatement in the visible aversion displayed towards him especially after the radical disappearance of his sailors abruptly ceased. He must likewise have begun to practice an extreme care and secrecy in his graveyard expeditions, for he was never again caught in such wanderings, whilst the rumors of uncanny sounds and maneuvers at his Patuscat farm diminished in proportion. So he gets a little bit, he's more careful, but he's clearly still stealing off slaves. That's clear. Um... Just a few lines later, quote, his rate of food consumption and cattle replacement remained abnormally high, but not until modern times when Charles Ward examined a set of his accounts and invoices did it occur to any person, save one embittered youth perhaps, to make dark comparisons between the large number of Guinea blacks he imported until 1766 and the extremely small number for whom he could produce bona fide bills of sale, either to slave dealers uh, at the Great Bridge or to the planters. So the point is, He's buying slaves, but he's not selling them. So where are the slaves, right? And he's there's a lot of food coming into the house. This is kind of reminds us of the Dunwich Horror too, right? Where there's that barn and they keep buying cows to feed something, but you know it's not really clear what it is. Um, now these are either his the mutants, the monsters he creates from his experiments, which we'll meet later in the story, or just the slaves themselves in some sort of confinement. But he's still slave trading. He's just doing a better job of covering up for these things, right? Now, ultimately, he finds the best way to cover up his crimes is to find the most respectable marriage he can. So he sets his eyes on this uh, woman, this the daughter of an old ship captain, a widower named Dute Tillingast, this daughter Eliza Tillingast. So Captain Tillingast, eventually, he's basically, Kerwin basically strong arms him into accepting this marriage. Uh, he doesn't really want to, but he's kind of forced to. And Eliza Tillinghast is forced to break her engagement with this man named um, Whedon, Ezra Whedon. And Ezra Whedon is going to be an important part in the rest of this section of the story as he, he's not too happy about this. And he becomes the first to say, aha, this Kerwin's up to no good. We got to do something about it, right? So he's the one who goes, everyone, a lot, well, at least not, not everyone, but a lot of people already knew he was suspicious cleaned up his act a little bit by the 1760s but he's still pretty suspicious but it's Ezra Whedon who says aha we gotta do something about him and he's going to be in integral in moving the story to one of direct confrontation with Joseph Kerwin but in any case he marries this woman he gets his formal portrait taken and this portrait will be a key plot point later in the story too because uh, it's something that Charles Dexter Ward is able to get a hold of um, and now we start to move towards uh, kind of the next part of the story. I think this this all sort of sets up who Kerwin is and, and his relationship with Providence. But in 1766, we're told of a final change in Joseph Kerwin, a sudden change. 
And it's basically where he sort of falls off the wagon. He stops being as good at maintaining his secret activities, right? He becomes more obsessed with them. We get more strange shipping behavior. We get graveyards. We also get, this is all corresponding with the American Revolution, right? So he starts getting weirder and weirder at the same time the British Empire is getting more aggressive and belligerent with the colonies. So I, I think we see another parallel here. Um, you know, we actually have more conspicuous evidence of Kerwin's smuggling activity, of smuggling in slaves. Um, now, partially, we know more about Kerwin at this time because Whedon, Ezra Whedon, pissed off that Kerwin stole his bride-to-be. You know, he starts to become very active investigator trying to keep an eye, keep tabs on Kerwin, and he does a pretty good job doing that, eventually discovering not only from learn, getting rumors from slaves and stories from slaves, finding, you know, finding out about the tunnels underneath Kerwin's home, right? He's got this kind of countryside estate, which has apparently all these tunnels here. And we also get sounds, the sounds. And here's where we get the first kind of hint, hinting at what Kerwin's doing. Um, it, seems, it seems what's happened, the story is, he's kind of figured out how to work this magic by this point so he this forces them back to the graveyards because he gets these bodies he can reduce them to the central salts and then revive these people and acquire their knowledge all right that's what's going on but um listen to this these voices before 1766 were mere mumblings in negro whisperings and frenzied screams coupled with curious chants or incantation invocations after that date however they assumed a very singular and terrible cast as they ran the gamut bewitched droning of dull acquiescence and explosions of frantic pain or fury, rumbling of conversations and whines of entropy, pain, teens of eagerness and shouts of protest. They appeared to be in different languages, all known to Kerwin, whose rasping accents were frequently distinguishable in reply, reproof or threatening. End quote. So what he's doing, he's like beating these people, right? So the earlier ones, when he's experimenting on the slaves, they're these mumblings and negro whisperings but now that he's kind of achieved his mastery of his skill he's actually interrogating these long dead historical figures who have been reduced to their essential salts and reawakened and it's it's kind of creepy right and he's apparently torturing them to get uh, knowledge from them you know tying them up in their chair i guess and, and slapping them till they tell the secret of the eternal life or some other alchemical mystery. Um, now, of course, he already knew a lot about alchemy. He's already kind of found out how to live forever. But he's, you know, what is he after? He, well, we get a little suggestion here that he's after, like, historical, scientific, and occult knowledge. Quote, Kerwin asked the prisoner, if prisoner it were, whether the order to slay was given because of the sign of the goat found on the altar in the ancient Roman crypt beneath the cathedral, or whether the dark man of the hot day Vienna coven had spoken the three words. Failing to obtain replies, the Inquisitor had seemingly resorted to extreme means, for there was a terrible shriek followed by silence, muttering, and a bumping sound. So I don't know if you can kill someone, break them down to their essential salts, and then reawake them, because you can take a dead person and reawake them. So I guess you can do that too. You can re-kill them. And, and so, yeah, that's these secrets. These people are holding on to these secrets even after death, right? Uh, for centuries afterwards. But this is like old historical minutiae sometimes. Some of these things he's after. He's asked about like 
a massacre in 1370 or something. So he's got must have witnesses to these things. And a lot of this he has to get from Europe, right? So that, again, is account for some of his transatlantic voyaging because these are Europeans he's after, not Native Americans. He's not going to Indian burial grounds to find that. I mean, I, I suppose you can find a lot of cool stuff in the graveyards of New England, but eventually you're going to have to go to Europe, right, to get the really deep history. So um, we get a little bit more here, too. This is a, a lot of this comes from Whedon's just, you know, investigations, but um, we find like the, the the tunnels underneath his house in the hills, right? His, his where his laboratory and stuff is were built by sailors. He actually recruited these sailors to build them. Um, so, wow, so much. There's just so much going on in this part of the story, and it's so also interesting. I I feel I could talk for another half hour easily. Um, but I'll try to speed things up a little bit. Um, but still, like, listen to this. This is a whole kind of sub-story within this story of Kerwin. Quote, it was in January 1770, whilst Whedon and Smith were still debating vainly on what, if anything, to think or do about the whole bewildering business, that the incident of the Florenza occurred. Exacerbated by the burning of the revenue sloop Liberty at Newport during the previous summer, the customs fleet under... Admiral Wallace had adopted an increased vigilance concerning strange vessels, and on this occasion His Majesty's armed schooner Signet under Captain Charles Leslie captured after a short pursuit one early morning the Skull Fortelza of Barcelona, Spain under Captain Manuel Aruda, bound accordingly to its log from Grand Cairo, Egypt to Providence. When searching for contraband material, this ship revealed the astonishing fact that its cargo consisted exclusively of Egyptian mummies consigned to sailor ABC would come to remove his goods in a lighter, just off Namquit point, end quote. So his cargoes are mummies. He wants Egyptian, he wants to get this knowledge from Egyptian mummies. I don't know if he learned Egyptian. Kerwin, he better have learned it if he's going to get anything from these mummies. But, you know, Kerwin's got a whole, as long as he wants to learn this stuff. So wild. I love this story so much. Um, when finally confronted on the mummies, he said, well, I needed something, you know, the chemicals from the mummy things I needed. But um, we also see him dumping bodies. So there's all much more suspicious things happening to Kerwin after, or Kerwin's doing more suspicious things after 1766. And this all comes to a head in 1770 and 1771. As Whedon basically has made up, he's collected his case he puts together a posse at the tavern. And again, where was the American Revolution in New England kind of organized? In taverns, right? Where was Sam Adams doing? He was like hanging out at these bars, right? And, you know, hanging out at these bars, confronting the, the Tories, planning the Boston Tea Party. It was all like it's a lot of this stuff, a lot of these revolutionary actions were like drunken uh after parties, right? After Sam Adams all his friends got drunk. And that's kind of what Whedon does. He gets all these people together at the bar, puts together his posse, and the posse includes many real historical figures from 18th century Providence. We have, once again, we see um, uh, Lovecraft able to show off his deep knowledge of this era of, of history. And they basically hear all of Whedon's stories and all the evidence he presents. And they say, 
yeah, we got to get rid of this guy. He's a weird man, and he's up to no good. So they make the decision to basically lynch him, right? But again, this is all in the context of the American Revolution. Quote, the times were lawless, and men who had flaunted, flaunt, flaunted the king's revenue forces for years were not the ones to balk at sterner things when duty impelled. Kerwin must be surprised at his Patuxic farm by a large raiding party of seasoned privateersmen and given one decisive chance to explain himself. If he proved a madman, amusing himself with shrieks and imaginary conversations and different voices, he would be properly confined. If something graver appeared, and all the underground horrors indeed turned out to be real, he and all with him must die. It must could be done quick, quietly, and even the window widow and her father need not know how it came about. So these guys are saying they're revolutionaries. They're already active in this revolutionary struggle, so they're not afraid of British law. They're basically in charge. Uh, and, and they're the law now at this point. And so they're going to do it. And I think, again, like, I'm convinced this is all, this whole section of the story is a, is a metaphor. The Kerwin story is a metaphor for the American Revolution in a really, really perverse way. And if you read it that way, Lovecraft is saying the 18th century was criminal. The 18th century was vile. And, and, and my appeal for it, my love of it is a lie. You know, or at least it's a self-delusion. And he's either subconsciously telling this story through Kerwin or he's conscious. I think it's more conscious. He's actually consciously exploring the 18th century in its reality. Human trafficking, slave trade, genocide, violence, right? Anarchy. Um, now, there's more evidence that comes even after they commit to doing this uh, we get this nice little story too about a body that's found um, quote the next morning however a giant muscular body stark naked was found on the jams of ice at the southern piers of the great bridge where the long dock stretched up beside abbott's still house and the identity of this object became a theme for endless speculation and whispering it was not so much the younger as the older folks who whispered for only the patriarchs did and did that rigid face with or bulging eyes strike any chord of memory, end quote. So this was a body of someone who died 50 years ago, but now presented as sort of a, a young man, but he's got this horror face. And so this is someone raised by Kerwin, turned into salt and reawakened through this magic, and then murdered, right? Pretty horrific experience, I suspect. Um, so now, now, before we move on to the final climax, the, the final two parts of chapter two, which deal with the, the lynch, the raid on uh, Kerwin's house, we get uh, our first evidence of this relationship with a man named Jebediah Orne of Salem. Um, so they start to intercept Kerwin's mail and they get this letter from Jebediah Orne. And this is an important part of the story. <clears throat> we get actually two letters for it and it's all written in like really old like almost 17th century kind of writing um and we we get a description here of they talk about now if you don't know what kerwin's doing it just seems like a weird occult nonsense but mentioned here are borealis who has this idea of the essential salts this book of the necronomicon which and they're talking about which books they're reading and sharing spells and things like that. Um, 
And Hyokuto says, like, from now on, you should write me as Jebediah, not Simon. So his name originally was Simon Orn, but he wants to be known now as Jebediah Orn. Why? It's because he's moved and he takes on taking a new identity. So Kerwin also is someone who's going to have to take on new identities, right, to continue to survive. Um, when you move on, when you live forever, you can't pull it off. For, you know, eventually have to move, right? People eventually figure out that you're a weird freak who should be like 200 years old, but you're still alive. So you got to move on to the next town and come up with a new identity. So he's saying, I'm now Jebediah Orn. Quote, in this community, a man may not live too long, and you know my plan by which I came back as my son. I'm desirous you will acquaint me with what ye black man learned from Sylvanus Conxidus in ye vault under the Roman law. So they're, they're sharing information. They're, they're a group. They're a cult together. They're a cult that's into this uh, raising the dead stuff. Um, so what else is in here? Is this where they talk? Is this where he talks about don't write, don't waken what you can't put down? I think that's later. I think that's later. Then another letter from Orn to to Kerwin. It might be in here. I forgot. But anyways, these are just really suspicious letters. We get a, a third suspicious letter is mentioned. Maybe that's the one. Like Ward finds it later on, and we get it's we get that background. But um, so we have. Pretty full picture now at this point of what Kerwin's up to, uh, especially when we look at the whole story. I mean, it's still a mystery. We're still kind of getting it in fragments through the notes and stuff that Ward put together. It's kind of like Call of Cthulhu in that way, where we just get little pieces here and there, right? It, it does form a kind of continuous narrative. In fact, given what we're meant to believe about the efforts of the people of Providence to erase the past of Kerwin, it's hard to believe that Ward could put all this together. But he sp Ward did spend years trying to put this together anyway, so it, in that sense, it it's not implausible. It's just it seems they did such a bad job covering up their tracks. All right, then we get to the events, the actions of April seventeen seventy one, which I'm not going to bore you with. Uh, you can read them yourself. Basically, they get this huge posse together big enough that they can have like three different divisions of like it's like it's like a hundred people it's just a huge group of people and they're going to confront joseph Kerwin. and if he's up to really evil magic shit they're going to like kill kill him right that's the plan and so they have this plan of attack and we get a lot of this from an observer like outside observers point of view like hearing the the sounds of battle and things it's kind of like dunwich horror and when the final battle is seen from afar um, but um, we get like narratives from different witnesses. So it's kind of narratively interesting how we get the story of Kerwin's like at least temporary fall from different witnesses who observed it. Uh, they who smell things and hear things and, and see people fleeing and, and all that. It's kind of chaotic. Um, but at the end of the day, Kerwin is announced dead. They come back successful, having announced that Kerwin is dead. It's not quite clear how he's killed. Now, we find out later, uh, you know, it seems they just like murder him. But later on, he's still going to be restored because you can restore these dead bodies if you know the right spells. Right. And this is where Charles Dexter Ward's role will be important. But um, 
what do we got? We got some evidence of how he was killed here, though. Uh, quote, old Charles Solcom of that village said that there was known to his grandfather a queer rumor concerning a charred, distorted body found in the fields a week after the death of Joseph Kern was announced. What kept the talk alive was the notion that this body, so far as could be seen in this burnt and twisted condition, was neither thoroughly human nor wholly allied to any animal, which Patuxifold has ever seen or read about. So is that Kerwin, or is it some creature from his dungeons? Um, I don't know. But anyways, Kerwin's dead at this point. And buried. And finding his grave, I guess that would have been one. They should have just hit his grave better. Then he never would have come back, right? Charles Dexter would have never been able to find it. So the ending of this, the denouement of this chapter, which again, as, as you see, is really a standalone story. Um, the denouement here is the effort to abolish the past. Their failed effort to abolish the past. Um, so we have some deaths. Eight sailors have been killed, but although their bodies were not produced, their families were satisfied with the statement that the clash with customs officers had occurred. So first they say it's not a war with Kerwin. It was a clash with customs officers. Later on, they, they actually attack the revenue ship Gatsby. So we see another kind of parallel to the American Revolutionary activities, right? Um, but they all kind of pledge themselves to secrecy and tell lies about what actually happened. Quote, of the citizen leaders, Captain Whipple and Moses Brown were most severely hurt. The letters of their wives testify the bewilderment with which their reticence and close gardening of their bandages produced. Psychologically, every participant was aged, sobered, and shaken. It's fortunate they're all strong men of action and simple orthodox religiousness. Um, we get uh, a bit of a letter. Uh, here's where it is. Here's where the letter where, um, for, again, from Jebediah Orn, where Kerwin is warned not to awaken someone you can't deal with. Quote, I say to you again, do not call up any that you cannot put down, by which I mean any that can turn call up something against you whereby your powerfulness devices may not be of use, end quote. Now, this is found and copied, and so that's why it survives for work to later pick up. But this is important because the kind of people they want to wake up are like wizards. These are They want this wizardly knowledge, and that, that's why they want to wake them up. But these are also the people that are likely to have access to the same knowledge and, and, and can actually do damage to, to them. That's eventually ultimate what happens to Kerwin. Um, not because he awakens someone, but because uh, Willet eventually figures out how to do it. So much of this is all about forgetting the past, though. Much of this last section of the chapter is all about abolishing, not just forgetting, abolishing the past. In fact, the language Lovecraft uses is obliteration. Quote, from that time on, the obliteration of Kerwin's memory became increasingly rigid, extending at last by common consent to every town record and file in the Gazette. It can be compared in spirit only to the hush that lay on Oscar Wilde's name for decades after his disgrace, and in extent only to the fate of that sinful king of Runzakar and Lord Dunsany's tale, whom the gods decided must not only cease to be, but must cease ever to be. They lie to Tillinghast. She, they basically say, you're, you know, a year later, she claims to be a widow. Um, but they do a bad job of it, obviously, because Ward's able to figure all this out. But if he doesn't, we don't have a story. So, you know, suspend your disbelief. Just pretend Ward had enough time and enough research skills or enough influence from his ancestor through dreams to, to be inspired to find out everything he could. 
So, um, yeah, as a, you know, great standalone story if you want to read it that way, but an essential part of this story. So much about Atlantic history, so much about the crimes of America, so much about the American Revolution, the desire to forget, uh, transatlantic connections. Oh, it's so rich. It's so good. And if I like Charles Dexter Ward more than any other of Lovecraft's stories, it's probably mostly due to this chapter, um, which I think is Lovecraft's most honest look at the 18th century. Um, so, uh, but let me know what you think. What do you think of chapter two of the case of Charles Dexter Ward? Uh, in the next episode, I will look at chapter three, obviously, which will pick up the story. Uh, it'll be a little bit shorter episode, I think, but it'll pick up the story with uh, uh, Charles Ward and how he starts to become corrupted and interested in Ward. And it's called a search and an evocation. And so... Um, we'll see what happens to Ward in this part of the story. So as always, thanks for listening. Leave, give me your thoughts. Send me an email and leave a comment or send me a tweet. I will gladly respond to you and, and I would love to hear what you have to say.